Good afternoon and welcome to our latest Classical Conversation presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. I'm Dave Beck with 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle. I'm a cellist, Seattle Chamber Music Society enthusiast and a co-producer with the SCMS team of these live conversations recorded and distributed via podcast. We're coming to you on Thursday, January 24th, 2013 as the winter festival concerts from Seattle Chamber Music Society are underway and conclude this weekend on Saturday, January 26th here in Nordstrom Recital Hall in Benaroya Hall. And we're gathered today with our audience at the Soundbridge Learning Center at Benaroya for this session with another distinguished Seattle Chamber Music Society artist. Uh, Society Artistic Director James Ennis has great admiration for the experience and training that his colleague in the Ennis String Quartet, violinist Amy Schwartz Moretti, brings to her playing and teaching and artistic leadership. Amy's spirit of collaboration shows up in her teaching studio, in her work as a chamber musician, and in her direction of a 26-member string ensemble that she leads at the McDuffie Center for Strings at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. That institution is breaking new ground in the education of young musicians, and Amy is a big part of that work, as we'll come to find out. She's served as concertmaster of distinguished American orchestras, the Oregon Symphony and Florida Symphonies among them. Amy's music making in partnership with James Ennis, violist Richard O'Neill, and cellist Robert Demain in the Ennis Quartet is always a highlight of Seattle Chamber Music Society programs. String quartets by Schubert and Hugo Wolf are some of the offerings that the ensemble will have for us this weekend when Amy and our colleagues play at the Winter Festival. So we'll take up the topic of her passion for musical leadership and collaboration as we spend the next little while listening to some of her music and we converse with violinist Amy Schwartz Moretti. So let's warmly welcome her. Thank you. I'm Thank so happy to be here. Yeah, it's great to it's great to meet you. I've heard you play um, and and really admire your playing. And uh, I'm going to do one of these classic public radio things and have you take us back to the beginning. Great. <laughs> Just uh, <laughs> about your early experiences, you know, with the with music and the violin. And... I come from a, a musical family, um, going back to my grandparents um, and my father as well. Um, when I was about four, I heard my great aunt play the violin and she had gone to Oberlin Conservatory to study and um, uh, so she had had some really fine training. Uh, heard her play and, and this was with my two brothers and my parents said, well, what do you want to, would you like to play violin? I said, yes. And, and that's how it started. I, I began playing in group classes, um, very fun. It was, it's always been a, an entertaining, fun activity for me. I think when I was, it was about six years old, seven years old, I started studying privately um, with what's called the Suzuki method, mm -hmm. which is learning um, by ear, uh, doing a lot of listening and um, always keeping it um, as a fun activity for children. Um, which I think is is very important when you're learning to do something like this. Um, and luckily, I had a fantastic teacher that um, also. So it's not only just listening. She she taught us all, um, taught me how to sight read and all the things that you need to learn. Mm -hmm. um, I I think it was about um, by age 12 that my parents realized that I must have had something. They saw something in in my talent then um, and. They sent me to 
it sounds like they're sending me off somewhere, but they sent me to this wonderful, amazing camp called Meadowmount School of Music up in the Adirondacks of New York. And I was around other people who we were, it was a practice style camp, so you had to practice five hours a day. They, they set aside that time for you and you had to do that. And, and I had never practiced that much in my life. So figuring out what to do for five hours a day on the violin um, was very interesting at that point. But um, that was when my eyes really began to open. I had grown up in North Carolina um, around other people who, you know, as I say, we were, we were having a great time playing, um, having fun and, and doing this. But this was an eye-opening experience. And it was actually um, funny enough that at Metamount is where I first met James. Ennis. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yes. So um, that first summer um, was when I met him, and um, so you can imagine um, the the level that was around me at, yeah. at that point. So, so the um, roots of this quartet are 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 deep. Right, and you know right. um, Bob Demain was there that summer. I think he was there that summer too. Uh -huh. um, anyway, yeah. So um, all kind of growing up in that same generation. Um, so. Uh, Come around age 15, after um, spending a couple summers at Metamount and doing my regular schooling at home in North Carolina, I, um, I made the, the choice at that point that I better go on to um, really spend each day um, seriously with the violin. So I moved to San Francisco at that time um, to finish up high school and pursue my studies and uh, then you know, went on to the next, <laughs> yeah. into college and then uh, started the career. So yeah. just well, kind of unfolded. I, I want to... Um kind of just punctuate this conversation today with this uh, beautiful recording that you have called Kaleidoscope. And this is this your debut solo CD? Yes, yeah. I know. I've, I've, I feel like I've been around for a while. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I um, after college, I went right into being a concertmaster. And I think just learning um, to play all the orchestral repertoire and the busyness that I was doing then, it didn't allow me to to do something like this, and so when I finally had the chance to do it, um, and here it is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You, well, you, how did you come across the the title Kaleidoscope? What does it say? Well, about? I, honestly, when I was um, figuring out the repertoire for the album, I knew that in this day and age, um, the shorter pieces are kind of grabbing attention now. You know, attention spans are a bit shorter with all the electronic <laughs> things. Um, so I, I tried to pick. Favorite pieces of mine um, over time that I'd either studied when I was younger or things that meant a lot to me. Um, so as I was picking the repertoire, we got the whole CD together and um, brainstorming ideas. And Kaleidoscope just seemed exactly what the repertoire on the the album represented. Mm -hmm. It's it's um, yeah, a variety. Yeah. It is a great variety. And what what I love about it is there's some some very familiar things. There's some Fritz Kreisler and uh, some things associated with Heifetz. Um, and uh, Thais meditation is, mm -hmm. is, is beautiful. And some, some things that we'll I'll pl play a couple samples of along the way that I've never heard of before, pieces by Jean Martinon, who I know more as a conductor than I do uh, a composer, uh, but obviously a very fabulous violinist. We'll find out about that. Uh, let's start out with one of those just um, soul-stirring melodies. It's, this is a melody by Tchaikovsky that you put on here. What attracted you to this particular piece? Well, obviously Tchaikovsky writes beautiful melodies, um, and this is entitled Melody. Um, I think growing up, I had listened to a lot of um, uh, beautiful recordings, and this 
this one in particular always stood out to me, you know, as well as meditation from Thais, but I always loved this melody, so. Uh. Mm -hmm. Good, well, let's, we'll hear a little bit of it. Tell me about, you talked about moving around a lot and, and sort of referenced the idea that, that your parents wanted to make music f you know, fun and something that, that was, was joyful. At what point did it occur to you that this was, um, you know, it was fun and joyful and you were passionate about it, but this was going to be your, your life and career? Well, it's a little bit hard to say, but I think when I made um, the decision to move to San Francisco when I was about 15, um, I think I knew then that um, well, I, it had always been part of my life, too. I really can't imagine not doing it. Mm -hmm. So I think when I, I moved there, um, it's funny how life unfolds, but um, I think that it was then that I knew that it was something that I really wanted to do. Now, at the same time, I went to regular high school. I kept... Uh, I. I kept my grades up. I did. I did all the, the things trying to be a well-rounded human being, mm -hmm. um, but I think it was then that I knew. Yeah, I, I'm interested in an experience. I think it was when you were 12. You, you said that it, things maybe got a little serious at, at age 12. Was that when you soloed with an orchestra for the first time? Yes. Yeah, what, I did. What was the experience? I did. Yeah. Um, I played the, the first movement of a Kabalevsky concerto with the Winston-Salem Symphony. And um, yeah, the feeling of having, probably it was about 80 musicians standing behind me and the conductor on the podium. That feeling was pretty incredible. Yeah. The, the mass of, of sound coming um, from behind and the support. I think maybe you speak of the collaborative nature and that's how I just, I, I see music as, as communication, collaboration, and I think even from that age, that's how I just always felt about it. It's mm -hmm. um, coming together and, and playing. Yeah. And it's, it's um, community, too. And, and I want, you know, you've, you've made such a commitment to, to your work as a concertmaster. I know you do it at, at summer festivals, and we'll talk about this chamber orchestra that you lead, but I know in regional orchestras that I've played in, when, when we have a there was a 12 year old trumpeter that played with us down in the Auburn Symphony. And, and there's just such a great satisfaction of, 
of doing that with, with, when you're in the orchestra. It really, it just um, reminds you sitting in an orchestra what, why you're in it. And the fact, too, that a couple, this particular uh, musician's parents played in this, in this orchestra. Oh, I mean, we were, gonna, you know, we're raising this child. Did you have this, you know, that, a similar feeling of, of you know, them kind of launching you out into the world? Yes, I think that I remember sitting in, in pit orchestras of um, playing musicals when I was probably 12, 11, 12, 13, getting called to go play a, a little um, a musical and just watching the people on the stage and making music and, you know, all those experiences, they do, they add to, um, yeah, what, what you grow into as yeah, a musician. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to kind of sprinkle these in every once in a while because I, I want to get to a few of these um, little gems that I, I didn't know about. A particular um, recording that you have is called, a, it's a perpetual motion by uh, Novacek, composer by the name of um, Otakar Novacek. Um, how did this come across your radar? And is it, is it common among violinists? I, I just haven't encountered this particular one. It seems common to me because I grew up listening to it, but I, I think I first studied the piece, of, you know, a, a, um, perpetual motion is pretty much straight 16th notes or straight fast notes. Um, so I had, my first teacher, Joanne Beth out of Greenville, North Carolina had introduced me to the piece. Um, so that's why it had a, a particular um, specialness to me. Um, but with the with the perpetual motion idea, yes, your left hand is doing um, the the fast notes, but then the right arm is is doing so much motion that by probably about two thirds of the way through this piece, you've got a burn in your muscle, um, in your upper arm. Um, but that's it's part of uh, part of building your strength. Feel and, the burn. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no pain, no gain. <laughs> It's, this uh, I don't know um, what you could tell us about this Novacek character. I, a Gavant House Orchestra, which was the orchestra that Mendelssohn um, founded, and he he played in that. This was a little after Mendelssohn's time. Is 1866 to 1900 were his dates. But he left there and came to to Boston. Played in a famous quartet. Was in the Damrosch Symphony in New York, which was the precursor to the the New York Philharmonic. So this is right, a fellow right. that uh, got around. This is the only piece that I am familiar. Huh. With, yeah, but. yeah. Well, let's listen to a little bit of Amy playing this um, "Perpetual Motion" by Novacek. <laughs> Some music of Otakar Novacek. It's a recording called Kaleidoscope, and it features our guest this afternoon, Amy Schwartz.
Moretti. That's a great discovery. It was really cool to, to hear that. I'm glad you like that. Yeah. Um, talking about teachers, and this particular teacher in North Carolina that you have fond memories of, and, and many of them along the way, uh, how was it that teaching became something that you felt so strongly drawn to? Well, I didn't ever picture myself as the, the teaching type. I, when I graduated from college, um, I went right into being a concertmaster. And I mean, even to this day, if you ask me, I feel like I'm continuing to learn each and every day. And that's the beauty of making music, too. It's just, it's endless, um, the discoveries that you make um, each and every time I pick up the violin and make music with other people. Um, so when I uh, moved to Florida, I think I was 24 around that time. Um, of course, being the concertmaster in the town, I think with the visibility that that brings to you, um, I had some parents reaching out to me saying, would you be interested in teaching my, my son or daughter? And, and at first, I just didn't have time. I was trying to learn the repertoire, marking the parts. When you're the concertmaster, you have to put in all the bowings, and, and there's a lot that goes along with that. Um, I had one very persistent mother. <laughs> Um, <laughs> who I love very much. We're very close now. Um, she kept contacting me, and and so I I finally said, well, let me let me just meet your son and have him come play for me, and that's really how it began. And um, it's kind of incredible that that one student is now um, he went on to study with the Vamoses and then went to Colburn. Um, to study with Bob Lipset out there, and now he is second violinist in a string quartet that's doing very well. Wow. So his name is Ryan Meehan. Huh. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of amazing that it started with, with him, and then I moved to Portland um, and continued to teach only a, a select, I mean, it was, I just, because of time, it, I could only do so much. Um, and then I guess we come to what I'm currently doing, and so that's yeah. when I um, when I got asked to um, move to Georgia to to run this program that I'm running, the McDuffie Center for Strings. That's when um, I kind of dove into it head mm -hmm. first. Mm -hmm. But but stepping you back a little ways, you know, great teaching just seems to be something that you encountered so often as, as right a... I I feel very blessed very lucky that I had great teaching um, from the beginnings with my Suzuki teacher Joanne Bath I then went to San Francisco well at Meadow Mount Margaret Pardee had a huge impact on my life um, and she taught at Juilliard at the time and then I went to San Francisco studied with Zavin Malikian who um, was the concertmaster of the San Francisco Opera um, so I had the opportunity to go hear the opera and um, just the, the influence that he had on me. Um, and you talked about the Martinon and that he introduced me to that piece. Um, and then um, going on to Cleveland Institute where Donald Weilerstein, who was um, violinist in the Cleveland Quartet for years and years, yeah. um, really had an impact. So I, yeah, I, I kind of, yeah, when you look at my, the teaching lineage there, I've had a, a mixture of, of all sides of mm -hmm. things. So. I'm going to pause here to play, while we're getting into the chamber music part of the story a little bit, to play a recording that was done uh, th just a year ago here in Benaroya Hall. And this is your Brahms cycle that, uh, mm. that you did with um, James Ennis and Richard O'Neill and Robert Domain uh, as the Ennis Quartet. Um, let's listen to that, and then we'll, we'll talk a little bit about uh, your work as a chamber musician. Okay, great. <laughs> 
That's the uh, third Brahms string quartet, the B-flat major, that Amy and her uh, colleagues played here in Benaroy Hall last year. Um, it was a beautiful cycle and, and beautiful playing. Chamber music is such a high priority for you, obviously, with this ongoing quartet. Um, tell me a little bit about how that got established. Um, the group or just chamber or your, music for me? Chamber music in general to begin with. Um, while I was studying in San Francisco at the Conservatory of Music, um, I played in a, a really wonderful piano trio there and um, was introduced to a lot of fine chamber musicians there. Um, and that's even where I first met Donald Weilerstein, who I ended up then going on to study with. Um, so I had great opportunities there. Um, during college, the Cavani String Quartet at um, Cleveland Institute of Music and Peter Soloff, who was the other violinist in the um, uh, Cleveland Quartet with uh, Donald Weilerstein, uh, had a huge impact on us, um, my quartet at that time. And we had the opportunity to go to Carnegie Hall for Isaac Stern's chamber music workshop and work with him and the Orion String Quartet and um, various other um, chamber musicians. So performing, uh, you know, every musician's dream is to perform on Carnegie Hall stage, right? That's, like, that's, that's kind of the, the culmination or the validation um, that you, you have kind of made it as a musician. Mm -hmm. that's a, um, so to be able to do that and, and do that with my string quartet um, had a huge impact on me. There is just something supremely special about playing chamber music and, and the quartet repertoire is, um, is so varied um, and vast that there wouldn't even be time to play everything mm -hmm. <laughs> in your lifetime. Um, but to have the opportunity to play with these guys um, in this group is, is pretty incredible. Do you remember specific interactions with Isaac Stern? Did you um, have a chance to? He coached the groups and um, yeah, he coached us. I just remember how tall he would stand and he'd just hold the violin. You know, he was all, he very much into the, yeah. Kind of regal uh, bearing. <laughs> yes, yes, very strong personality. Um, very nice encounters with him. Yeah, I, I want. I'm interested in this fellow, um, Mr. Malikian, uh, yes. in in San Francisco, who was a longtime concertmaster. Yes. And uh, as as we get into the more into the concertmaster phase, I want was did you study excerpts with him? Was that part of the training, or was it? Interestingly enough, he, when I was studying with him, I did not play in orchestra. It was because I, and it's also my age, you know, I was that, that kind of pivotal time, 15 to 16, 17, that age, he wanted me to really focus on my studies. So I think when I first moved to San Francisco for the first six months, I think I didn't play anything but etudes and scales. And I, if I asked my mother and my father, did I call home, like, when am I going to play a piece? <laughs> um, I'm sure that, that I, I think that that's what I recall. But that, that couldn't have been um, more healthy for me to do. Yeah. Because once, um, once you can navigate the instrument, then, then the door opens and you can, you can play mm -hmm. the music. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so you were in San Francisco um, from 
did you say age 15 or what was the time? Right, like? right. Yeah. It's around 15. Yeah. What was that like? Was that culture going from? Let's see, where you're going from North yeah, Carolina, small town to, North Carolina to San Francisco. Yeah. I loved it. It was it was San Francisco is a beautiful city. Um, I was in a a special place called the Music House. That another mother had a daughter who was a pianist, and um, I, now that I'm a parent, I see you you want to do everything for you. You want to make sure that there are opportunities for your children. But they had a house called the Music House. It was a block away from the San Francisco Conservatory, and um, there were three other kids like me that were from far away, that from far away lands. <laughs> um, there was a girl from Taiwan um, and a little bit more Southern California and myself. And, um, and we, I went to regular high school and then went to the conservatory on Saturdays and practiced and um, yeah, I think about it now and I ask my parents, how did, you know, how did, how did they let me do that? How did I leave home at that age? Because now that I have children, I, I don't know, I don't even want to think about that day yet. But um, um, I just, I, I have such a great relationship with my parents. I, I call them, and I think it probably started at that point that mm -hmm. I, I, you just you call, and, um, and they were always so supportive. Yeah. What, what did they say about those, those times? Was it, was it difficult for them to see you go? Or? I think so. Yeah. I think so. They're the type of parents, though, that they would they would never want me to know that that it was ever hard for them. <laughs> exactly. They're they're so loving and, um, no. yeah, yeah. And and um, are they were they professional musicians? My father was a choral conductor, and um, he went to IU and to make his way through college, he played clarinet and various things, doing um, jazz gigs and and whatnot, but then he became a choral conductor and then ultimately went into administration. He was dean of um, various music schools. Hmm. Um, your husband is a jazz musician. Yes. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's, that's a segue into our next selection. We're gonna play one of the uh, Gershwin preludes that you have on uh, Kaleidoscope, and w where does this music um, sort of stand for you, or how do you hold it in your heart and soul? Right. I. Um, I love all types of music, and it's especially fun for me to kind of um, let go and play something that's that's a little bit more free, like that. So, um, so uh, yeah, of course I love the Gershwin Preludes, and and Heifetz uh, plays them incredibly, and yeah. obviously he did the um, arrangements for these. Um, but I I love to um, hear my husband play and. There's something freeing, yet jazz, you have to, there's a pulse. There's a pulse there. You know, you've got the bass and the drums that are, that are holding down the beat. And so I always thought that, oh, improvising, you're just free. And, but no, you, you do. There's a structure. Yeah. You've got to stick within the structure. <laughs> and so he, as, I'm, as I'm doing different styles of music, my, my husband's always there to um, give me pointers. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that. But first, let's listen to this. This is the third prelude of... Uh, Gershwin as arranged by Heifetz and played by our guest Amy Schwartz Moretti.
third prelude from Gershwin. It's from a recording called Kaleidoscope. Amy Schwartz Moretti is our guest on our Classical Conversation podcast from uh, Benaroya Hall here, presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society, where Amy is playing uh, through this weekend. Um, so the producer of this recording is? Steve Moretti. Steve Moretti. And uh, how did you meet? We met, it was the end of my first season with the Florida Orchestra, my, my first job out of college, and he was passing through town with Tony Tennille, if you've ever heard of Captain and Tennille. <laughs> he was coming to perform with her, and it was his first uh, orchestra appearance as the drum set player. Um, so we just, we met, yeah. <laughs> and the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, and that was, what, 12 years ago. Yeah. So. So um, what's it like working with him when he's, you know, he's your set of ears, he's your producer, advisor, and looking after all the sound on this recording? Right. It's, it's great. Um, obviously, he hears me practicing at home, and I, I enjoy playing for him at home and, and getting feedback then uh, just as well. But it was, um, it was very good. I, I could trust him, and I, I knew that he was... Um, was listening and he has an amazing ear for this for um, the kind of studio work the audio work that that goes beyond what you know as you, as a chamber musician and, and a collaborative player you have to have, your ears are listening for certain things reacting to the musicians around you but there's there's a certain um, you know listening for the the different levels of the decibels uh, um, with the audio recording that that goes beyond any of my knowledge. Um, so he's, he's very tuned into that. And so that, that was interesting watching him work in that environment. Yeah. He does a lot of production work or is he mainly a performer or? He, he kind of does a little bit of um, everything. We just did a, a, a PBS special that um, will be out, it should be out next Christmas season, um, which he was in the, um, the big sound truck doing the, um, the audio for that, and then, of course, there was a separate truck for doing video, but he was doing that. He's done a CD for an opera singer. He's done some rock um, CDs. He's done some jazz things. So he's done a, a mixture of, of producing. Yeah. What, what is having someone like that you know, in your life and work, I mean, what kind of a dimension does that add to your you know, life as, a, as an academic, as a, as a classically trained artist? Um, what is, how does he kind of enrich your life artistically? I think that he understands, um, he was also classically trained, so he, he understands what my day-to-day -day life is like. Um, but I think for me, it is, it is a freeing um, thing to, to have his, it's such a, that kind of jazz lifestyle. So yeah, if you make a mistake in jazz, then oh, you bring that out again. It's like, <laughs> I didn't know, that wasn't a mistake. That was great, you know? In classical music, of course, there are the notes on the page and you, right. you know. So it's, it's an interesting, in terms of things like that, it's, um, it's interesting to, to see um, how relaxed, um, he can be, and when I watch him with his colleagues when he's doing um, jazz. But we've also done some playing together. That's what I understand. Um, yeah. I, and I don't proclaim to be a jazz artist at all, um, but I try to have good feel when I'm playing. <laughs> um, we, um, a conductor that he works with, Matt Kattengub, um, is an amazing arranger, um, as well as conductor, saxophonist, pianist. He's you know, one of these 
um, jack of all trades type uh, people. He did some really cool arrangements of Girl from Ipanema and One Note Samba, and we just got him to arrange Brazil, which is another kind of um, tune like that, for solo violin, string quartet, and then rhythm section. So you got the, the piano, bass, and then Steve, my husband, plays cajon on it, which is a little box you sit on, and it, it almost sounds like a drum set. Huh. But doing things like that, um, it's very fun because I enjoy that style of music and then to try to bring it to life on the violin. You know, I, I, I add my classical flair to it. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. are, you, are you recording that or touring with it or how do you um, incorporate just it? Performing. Yeah. You know, there, there are clips up on probably on YouTube by this point, um, but um, just performing it. Yeah. It would make for a really cool recording project, so you never know. It sounds like it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we were talking a little bit about... Um, I think James Ennis' daughter is 10 months old, and, and you have, yes. was it four and two-year-olds? Four and two and a half, yeah. yes. I know. So, so what did you learn from your parents, or what are your ideas that you've learned over the years about you know, creating the right musical environment for them so they can you know, find the right place for music in their lives? I know. Well, both children, of course, grew up listening to the violin in utero, um, and they're hearing it all the time. They... Um, we are introducing them to all sorts of different music. So there's, there's a variety in our household. Um, but of course, classical music is, is um, very prominent there. Um, but I am seeing um, musical inclination in, in both of them. They, are, they have great ears. And um, we have a little purple plastic violin that, <laughs> that especially my two and a half year old loves to, when I go to practice, oh, he likes to come practice with me. And, right. And we play little things together, and you know. yeah. Yeah, is it? Um, do you do you have to go through anything? Uh, I, I I have this memory of my daughter when I would be practicing the cello. She's about three years old, and and you, you know you have to kind of keep boundaries so you can you can practice. But the game that I always developed with her is she would ask for "Twinkle Twinkle, Eensy Weensy," and "Row Row Row Your Boat." And if I play those three. Then she then she'd, that go, was she, it. Then she'd go, now practice your cello, and she'd, yes. <laughs> she'd go on her way. We have, our, our tunes are um, Winnie the Pooh, Thomas the Train, and Dinosaur Train. These wow. are, I, I don't know if you've heard of these, they're, the, um, Thomas the Train is very big now. Yeah. With the, I, I think it's been big for a while, but of course it's new to me, um, <laughs> having the boys. But I, I can play those tunes very well <laughs> on the violin now. Um, and, and they get very entertained and oh they clap That's and excellent. they love it. They, yeah. And then they let you go practice. Right, exactly. Martino. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and I, I do want to talk about that. Um, this uh, next selection we're going to hear from your Kaleidoscope CD is a um, solo sonatine by, by Jean Martineau. And uh, someone that I know is a conductor primarily, he lived from 1910 to 1976. I remember a lot of great French recordings that he uh, made um, and you say, Mr. Z uh, uh, yeah, yeah, Mr. Malikian introduced me to this piece. Um, uh, part of growing up as a young musician, if you get to the stage where you want to do competitions and and whatnot, you have to to find repertoire that um, that is interesting um, and fits within guidelines of the competition and yeah, being 20th century, you know, all these things. This piece stood out because it, it, I think it's a very interesting piece. It, um, it starts out um, slow and then it develops into the, um, 
kind of like almost crazy fiddling uh, mm -hmm. um, as you near the end. Um, so it's technically challenging, but I think very interesting to listen to. Yeah. And, and um, your, your teacher, how did how did he? Do you remember how he came across this piece? Or because I mean, again, I, I know again, I'm how not did a he find so it? I know it seems obscure to me, but I know he well he studied in Paris, um, and so I think he was introduced to the piece yeah. in Europe and. Um, and and, and yeah, it's almost in that tradition of Izai or something where mm -hmm. it just it really puts the fiddle player through the through the paces. Yeah. yeah. Let's listen to it. That's a solo sonatine by Jean Martinon, the conductor, violinist. It's a piece that's included on Amy Schwartz Moretti's recent recording called Kaleidoscope. Uh, it's interesting reading about uh, Martinon. He was um, actually imprisoned in a, in a Nazi labor camp and composed a fair amount of music there, a piece called Stalag 9, uh, an orchestral piece incorporating elements of jazz, <laughs> I'm, I'm told. Mm -hmm. And then uh, succeeded Fritz Reiner as head of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, did all sorts of new music in five seasons with the Chicago, Chicago Symphony, which is apparently a little too much for Chicago's conservative music lovers who, according to this source, sent him packing. <laughs> but um, um, is there more violin music to discover by Jean Martineau? There is, but it is hard to come by. Um, and I've I tried to explore more. This is Sonatine number five, okay. so oh, um, yeah. there, there are more. Um, but I have not played any more works by him. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, there is more to discover. And I, I feel like there's um, some concerto things that um, I was trying to get a hold of, but I haven't been able to get a hold of the music yeah. yet. But. Yeah. Um, I want to we'll play another sample in a minute of your work with the uh, Ennis Quartet. Um, and this was from this very wonderful uh, Bartok Fourth Quartet that you did here uh, a year ago. Tell me about the genesis of the of the quartet with James. We know about the, the years at Meadowmount, which is your first introduction to him. Right, right. Well, um, I think Seattle is such a special place, and we, this is a place where we've all come together here, and I think we found playing together, um, there's, you know, when you're doing collaborative work, when you find people that you naturally just fall into sync with and uh, um, enjoy making music together and, and 
um, and all of that. It, so Seattle became kind of a place for us to get together musically. And I, you know what, when I think about it, the first time that we actually played as a quartet was I brought them to Macon. Um, we had talked about trying to do something. And um, so then I said, hey, guys, I've got a series yeah. <laughs> down in Macon. Let's do it. And so we, we got together then. And um, there was no pressure on that at all. We just got together to, to play a quartet concert. And it was, oh, it was crazy insane. We put together a, a huge program in a matter of days and um, had a fantastic time. I mean, making music all day, late into the night, and, um, and then played the concert. And, and I think it was then that it, it all kind of, we all realized that, yeah, this is, this is pretty, pretty special. Yeah. So um, it just kind of grew from there. And Seattle is, is where we all kind of came together, because this is where I first met Richard. Um, so it, yeah, yeah, that's it, how it started. That's, yeah, I, did, I didn't know the, the, the Macon connection yeah. there. Yeah. Is it possible to put into words what you admire about, about playing with these fellows and the, and, the, and the musical chemistry that you have or, or what it is about working together that, um, that, that just clicks? Yeah, there, it is hard to put it into words. It, I think that I'm just, it's such admiration for their playing, for their musicianship, um, for the mastery of their instruments. Um, you know, sitting next to James, um, playing this this repertoire that we're doing, and wa wait till you hear the Schubert when he plays. Yeah. It's it's just incredible, um, and that's when when I was talking earlier about how you learn each and every day. That's I feel like when I'm with them, it's it's just the the continuation of my education. You know, mm -hmm. it's just I'm I learned so much from making music with them, and it's it's just such a pleasure that. Time just, it's, it's like it stands still, yet it goes so fast. Because it's just that time when we're together playing is um, very special. Mm -hmm. And, though, and that, that learning comes from interpretive ideas, from, a, mm -hmm. from different schools of thought. I, I mean, yes, from drawing the bow at a particular speed, from phrasing something that in, in a way that I had never thought of. Um, and when I talk about how you, you find the chemistry that works and you know you, you need to have differences of opinion too because that's, that's what um, makes music interesting too. So if, if the phrasing, whether you take time here, whether you um, do a particular bow stroke, whether you do something with vibrato, with a certain type of vibrato, there's, there's all kinds of um, levels of, of that and so much of our rehearsing can go almost unsaid. We play, and we have to say, we, you know, of course you, you talk while you're in rehearsal, but so much of it is using your ears, using your eyes, observing things, and, um, and matching, mm -hmm. blending. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems to me, well, it's, it's interesting that uh, Robert Domain, his work is principal cellist in, uh, in Detroit, and, and, and your concert master experience, uh, and, and then the other two, um, primarily soloists, but, um, but again, that kind of collaboration, that, that working with different people 
mm-hmm. different styles I mean, that, that comes back for you when you're in a setting like this. Right, yeah. right. Well, and th- these guys, you know, as we talk about being great collaborators, it's, it's amazing that James and, and Richard can go from doing, yeah, huge solo um, performances and then come into the chamber music setting and, and be just as collaborative. I think that they approach their solo work in, in that same kind of way. Because um, I've, I've actually had the opportunity to perform with James when he's done concertos with a couple of orchestras. And um, I mean, he stands up there as soloist, um, yet you can, you can feel that he is completely tuned into the, into the orchestra collaborating. It's not just soloist orchestra. Right. It's, it's the collaborative effort. Right. Well, let me play just a little sample here of this Bartok Fourth Quartet. This is the little codetta from the, the end of the first movement of the fourth that you played last year, just to give us a, a taste of um, the extraordinary work the four of you do together. some music from the fourth string quartet of Bartok. Our fine recording engineer, Bill Levy, called, uh, captured that last winter here at the uh, Seattle Chamber Music Society Winter Festival, and we're talking with Amy Schwartz Moretti. She is a member of the, the James Ennis Quartet, and um, Schubert, you know, you mentioned that you're going to be playing this weekend. There, there's a test of, uh, you know, different ways of interpreting, different, so many different mm-hmm. styles you can bring, and I think my experience playing Schubert, it can be deceptively difficult music. Yes, it's very transparent. Um, yeah, it, it's like Mozart in that way that it has that kind of transparency. You, you hear every note, you hear every articulation. You hear, and he was very specific about the way that he um, articulated those notes. Um, the other thing about Schubert is the length of some of the music when I, I, the last movement, for example, I think um, in my violin score, it's probably a good 10 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, it flies by, um, but it is, it's a, it's a stamina, it's um, propelling the music in a way that's interesting for a listener, um, but also enjoyable for us to yes. play while we're, um, but yeah, it's, there's, there's technically a lot happening in there, um, but just some of the most beautiful music mm-hmm. in the whole world. You, when I'm playing it, it doesn't feel long at all. I just, I wish that it would go on forever. Yeah. I, I, it's just um, that great. Yeah. I don't know if you know any of these folks. There's a new recording out by this ensemble called The Knights. Have, have you no, experienced I'm... them at all? Well, it's, it's very interesting because it pairs Schubert with um, Morton Feldman and, and Philip Glass. And you, you think, what is, what is Schubert doing on a disc like that? But uh, we'll be airing this in KUW in coming days with, with one of our local music critics. But it's a discussion of how Schubert was not so uh, destination-driven like, like Beethoven. It was all about right. the drama of getting here and there. It's about, you know, it's about the journey, not the destination. It's a kind of lingering along, almost, almost sort of riffing along. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and it takes time for those ideas to unfold. Thus, right. whoever it was that you know, talked about Schubert and heavenly length. 
but but that's that's it's a very different kind of mindset than than playing Beethoven or another composer. Yes, that's interesting. The the parallel with Philip yeah. Glass. I'm about to play um, uh, where Bobby McDuffie, uh, Robert McDuffie, commissioned a work by him, um, the American Four Seasons Concerto, and so. I've had the opportunity to play that um, in the orchestral part, um, but also hear him do it. And so, yes, you're you're right. There is a little bit of parallel there. It's, in it's interesting. The, well, yeah. let's listen now to our final selection. And this is um, you playing with Robert McDuffie. And then I want to talk just a few minutes about the, the work at the McDuffie Center down in Macon, because it's quite extraordinary what you're doing down there. Um, Robert McDuffie playing here with um, Amy Schwartz Moretti, and this is a, a duo for two violins by Moskowski. Last movement of a duo for two violins by Moskowski. It's on Amy Schwartz Moretti's uh, recent recording called Kaleidoscope. And she plays there with Robert McDuffie. And you are uh, the director of the McDuffie Center for Strings uh, in the Townsend School of Music at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia. That's and right. um, Robert McDuffie, that's his hometown. That is. He was born in Macon, um, the home of uh, the Allman Brothers and... Uh, a lot of Southern rock coming out of there, but now B-52s. we're... B-52s. <laughs> B-52s are a Macon band, I think. Either that or Athens. I mean, it oh, is... Oh, that or Athens. Ooh, ooh, I'll get myself in trouble. That's right. The... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Mike Mills was out of... Uh, from R.E.M. Was that R.E.M., out of, out of, Yes. Right. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of that uh, Southern rock, but, but now we are bringing classical music... <laughs> <laughs> into and out of Macon, In a big way. Um, yes. So six years ago, we started this program. Um, it was an idea to have a conservatory-level program within a university um, where they got excellent string training from professionals that were performers that were out on the front lines performing every day, but then also getting um, the kind of education, especially in the side of business, um, uh, independent contractor, entrepreneurial. Um, areas to, to be able to, when you get out of school, can you get a job? Can you find work? Um, how do you make opportunities for yourself? So we're really trying to um, help these, these young musicians find their way. Mm -hmm. And how, um, how 
else are you doing that? I'm thinking specifically about this uh, this chamber ensemble that you've uh, you've put together. Twenty six. String players? Right. So yeah. the, the program is only 26 string players, um, 12 violins, 6 violas, 6 cello, and 2 double bass. Um, amazing faculty artists that work with them. Um, they do their lessons, their um, solo lessons. They play in chamber ensembles. And then we also have a, the McDuffie Center String Ensemble, which I lead from the concertmaster chair. Um, they also play in an orchestra. They're, they have various activities. But um, the ensemble is fun for me because it's a little bit of that kind of um, concertmaster outlet. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also giving the training, giving the experience to these students um, of learning how to play in the ensemble setting without a conductor. Um, so it's, it's a little bit of that. Um, the kind of the, the branching out of the chamber music um, in the large ensemble. Um, but I think what, um, what sets us apart in terms of what we're trying to do is really set, set the bar for the business side. Because um, obviously they're gonna get great string training, um, but we just wanna make sure that that they are able to then go on and make a living doing what they enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. And and there's a, I think I read that there's a there's a liberal arts emphasis as part of that. But but how else does that, you know, do you practically um, offer that to a to a young player? I think that we have a because of the size of our uh, program, they get a lot of one on one time mm -hmm. with the faculty artists. So. For example, someone like um, Larry Dutton, who plays in the Emerson String Quartet, comes in to teach the lessons. But um, not only the viola students have access to talking to him, and um, Robert McDuffie is very involved with the program, not only being the founder, but he comes in to teach and give master classes. And um, we talk about what's happening out there. We've got David Halen, who's concertmaster of St. Louis Symphony. We talk about what's happening with um, within the orchestral world um, in terms of the economics of it um, and how that's affecting the musicians mm -hmm. and um, the managements. And so we're trying to be realistic, um, not just tell them that they sound great in their lessons and, you know, see you next week. Right. Um, and I think that they get all sorts of opportunities um, playing alongside their mentor teachers too. Um, not only like how I'm playing within the center ensemble, we do um, various chamber music performances and, and things where they get to play with Larry Dutton, with um, Beck Albers, with Julie Albers, yeah. um, who comes out here to Seattle a little bit. Is, uh, Julie Albers is this wonderful festival cellist, as, as many of you know. And and she teaches down there with you. And right. uh, to to localize this with with Seattle, there's um and uh, you I imagine you worked with uh, Lavena Johansson. Oh, of course. Lavena is a fine local cellist who grew up in West Seattle and uh, and then graduated from Mercer, studying with Julie, and now she's with Amit Palad at right. uh, Peabody Conservatory. And so I watched her play in recitals with my kids in West Seattle and watched this young woman you know, blossom as a cellist. And it was exciting to know that she was down you know, in your, in your care down there. I know, she was in the very first recruiting class that I did. So um, to see how well she's doing, um, the very, very talented 
young lady. I think she's got a great future in yeah. front of her. Well, I just, um, it's an exciting place, I think, to be, to be watching and, um, and, and listening uh, for, for the product coming out of, I hate to say that word product, but, but um, Robert McDuffie really sets an interesting tone uh, in terms of creating opportunities, making things happen. First of all, you're in this out of the way place right, making. Right, Yeah. But everyone, please come visit us. Yes, yes. <laughs> and and, uh, and he is just a very interesting point of trivia about him. He was very good friends with um, Justice Harry Blackman, the late Supreme Court Justice. And uh, I think they met in Aspen or something like that. But uh, Robert then started a chamber music series at the Supreme Court, which which may still go on. I'm not I'm not sure. But I, I think that's the you know that's the idea to, that to create opportunities he, and right. I think Robert McDuffie that you know this is his name is on this school, but I think yeah that entrepreneurial spirit um, stems. Uh, from him. I think that he has such a good sense of that. I, I mean, even from the way that he put together a conglomerate to, to purchase his violin that he's playing on, yeah. um, he got together 30 individuals to invest in an instrument. And, um, and when they go to sell it, all those people will have a wonderful investment. He had the wherewithal to think of doing something like that. Yeah. And, um, and then from starting this the founding this program in Georgia and also um, over in Rome. There's a chamber music festival in Rome, Italy. That um, now we've actually we're we're tying it into our program at Mercer, where um, ten students get the opportunity to have that study abroad mm -hmm. experience and go play chamber music over in Rome, get to see a different culture and have that experience. Yeah. So much fantastic stuff going on. Um, Amy, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us, for your, for your work with the NS Quartet, for all the work you do with the festival down at Mercer uh, as a concertmaster. You know, summers are with uh, your, right, you know, the your, yeah, and the with uh, Donald Runnicles and right. Atlanta Connections. So um, let's give a, another round of applause. Thank you. Well, that brings this latest classical conversation gathering and podcast to an end. Uh, you can find our series of podcasts online at seattlechambermusic.org. This is a sixth of them, so, so get caught up. You can also get your tickets and winter festival information at that site. These winter concerts by the Seattle Chamber Music Society continue through Saturday evening, January 26th in Benaroya here. James Ennis is the artistic director of the society. Uh, our engineer for these podcasts is Bill Levy. The programs are produced by me, along with Seattle Chamber Music Society Director of Education Programs and Operations, Jeremy Jolly. From SoundBridge at Benaroya Hall in Seattle, I'm Dave Beck with KUOW 94.9 Public Radio. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you.